Good morning, church family. Uh, we are in the month of May, so today is Sunday, May 3rd. I um, mean, this is the seventh week that we have gathered this way. Uh, so I, I bring you greetings from the empty sanctuary here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. Um, and I want you to know that your pews miss you and your pastor misses you. Uh, and Lord willing, uh, and I think we should be praying for this, but uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to gather here again soon. Um, and so I long for that day. I know that many of you are longing for that day as well. Uh, but in the meantime, let me just make clear that we are still the church. And so you as a believer, me as a believer, we're still able to love one another. We're, we're still able to function in the ways that we're called to. We're not prevented from living the Christian life in community just, just because we can't meet together. And so let me just encourage you to continue to be the church, continue to be brothers and sisters to one another. Um, so maybe this week, reach out to someone, pray for them over the phone, ask ways that you can care for them. And just because we're not meeting here doesn't mean we're not the church. Um, we, we haven't ceased to be the church just because of, of this current situation. So um, let's care for each other as we wait for the day when we will meet together again. And I do want to, on that front, on meeting together again, I do want to tell you, um, mark your calendars for May 17th, so not next Sunday, but the following Sunday, so two weeks from today, um, we are, we're looking at, planning on um, having a, tentatively planning on having a drive-in service, so May 17th, um, mark that on your calendar, maybe um, get some clothes washed, get some clothes washed, and get some gas in your car, and, and plan on coming here. We'll, we'll have some details coming out this week and next week, but but Lord willing, May seventeenth, we're gonna we're gonna try and have a drive-in service, um, uh, just a chance for us to to gather um, together and and maybe yeah, just just be closer in proximity. So again, that's May seventeenth. So so plan on that, um, and again, there there are more details that will come um, be made known as they're available. Uh, but let me read this morning as we begin from Psalm thirty-three. I'm gonna read from Psalm thirty-three. Um, and then I'm going to pray for us um, as we begin. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. 
Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. From our heart, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. And let me pray for us as we begin this morning. Lord, in light of this psalm and, and its great truths that are, that are contained within it, uh, we confess that there's none like you. There's, there's none beside you. And by your word, the heavens were made, and by your breath, all things that live have life. Your counsel, Lord, it stands forever. Your plans never fail to come to pass. And so we cry with the psalmist, may all the earth fear you. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of you. And so we want to do that this morning. We want to stand in awe of you and wonder at your majesty and your greatness. And Lord, we, we know that you are our deliverer. You are the lifter of our heads. You are the author and perfecter and finisher of our great salvation. And so we just want to confess our total inability to save ourselves. And we confess that we aren't smart enough or good enough or clever enough or pretty enough or kind enough or genuine enough or strong enough or enlightened enough or advanced enough. We are none of these things. We are totally unable to save ourselves. And so we look to you as our Savior your steadfast love alone is sufficient to give us hope. And so we, we forsake all efforts of salvation. We, we put our trust in nothing except for you. This morning we rejoice that your steadfast love has been revealed to us, not only in creation, but in the sending of the Son. We see in the death and resurrection of Christ, your steadfast love on display. And so Lord, I ask that you'd make our hearts glad in you. Help us to trust in your holy name. Uh, Lord, even as we wait for your deliverance, um, as we go through this season, would you sustain us and sustain our hope and our trust in you? Lord, we want to pray for our church family. I pray for those who are especially feeling lonely. Uh, I pray, Lord, this week that they would find comfort in relationships, whether it's a phone call or um, whatever means you see fit to use. Lord, I pray that you would be near to the lonely. And Lord, we pray for uh, the stickles for Philip and Ashley as they're waiting the birth of baby Ethan. We pray that he would come in your time. And we pray for Philip and Ashley as they wait. Grant them patience and trust. Uh, Lord, we pray for a complication-free delivery. We thank you for this life um, that you've given them. We pray that you would grant this young boy your spirit and cause him to walk in your ways. Um, and so we, we pray that you would bless um, the stickles and, and the coming birth of their first son. Uh, Lord, we also remember those who are unable to have children, those who have tried or um, and have been unable or, or for whatever reason have been unable to have children. Um, Lord, we pray you'd be near to them. Lord, would you satisfy them? Um, Lord, yeah, we, we ask for, for those. Um, Lord, we pray for the children, those here in Hampton, but also in our, 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 our state, our country, and all over the world who, um, for whatever reasons, have been orphaned. We pray, Lord, that you'd protect them. Now we pray for the orphans, the, the, those who suffer um, not on their own account. We pray that you'd provide for them, um, give them homes and, and families. Um, Lord, care for, for the orphans. Uh, we pray for CareNet and, and their continued ministry. We pray for success for them and, and cause them to persevere um, during this time. 
Lord, we pray for the children that you've given to this church, that you've entrusted to us, um, those whether in the nursery or, or we worship or kingdom kids um, or Sunday schools or youth or our WANA program. Lord, you have given us so many children that, that, that we are tasked to, to disciple and care for. And so I, I thank you for our church and these, these many ministries. Um, and as we're unable to meet now, I pray that you'd be near to these children. I pray that you'd help all of us as parents, um, gr- parents, grandparents, um, caretakers. Lord, help us to take the spiritual care and nurture of these children seriously. We, uh, we repent for our neglect to do so. So help us to um, steward the children you've given us well and, and point them to you. Lord, I pray for the children's ministry uh, workers and, and volunteers, as well as those that have worked and volunteered with our youth ministry. Uh, we pray that we would be able to gather again soon. Um, but until then, we pray that, that you would keep these, these children and their families. Um, Lord, we, we pray that your steadfast love would be upon us as we hope in you. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to continue our, our series in the, the study and work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is our third week. Uh, we don't have a passage specifically that, that we're going to work through this week. Um, and so I can't tell you somewhere to turn. We're not going to read a passage here. But if I, if I did pick one passage, if I had to pinpoint one passage it would be from the beginning of Acts to the end of Acts. We're, we're going to focus on the book of Acts um, as we continue our series in the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't been with us, or if you have, just by way of reminder, week one, we looked at the work of the Spirit in, in glorifying Christ. And we looked from, from John 16. And then part two, the second week, still in John 16, we looked at the work of the Spirit in convicting the world. And so both of those are, are related to the foundational work of the Spirit. And so this week, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the work of the Spirit as, as marking the transition from old to new. And so, so we're going to see that the work of the Spirit marks a transition from old covenant to new covenant. And so as we look at the sending of the Spirit in the book of Acts as the sign of transition from old to new, um, we, we're going to see that, 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 that the coming of the Spirit is a mark or is it marks the transition from one thing to another. And so we're looking at the, at the book of Acts because, if you're not familiar with the storyline of the Bible, the book of Acts picks up after the, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so the book of Acts tells the story of the first Christians, of the disciples, after Jesus has left. And so Luke, who is the author of Acts, he also wrote the gospel that's named for himself. And so Acts is, is a Luke part two. And so it's a continuation. So uh, initially, Luke and Acts were, were one big book. And so Acts is a continuation of what happens when Jesus goes back into heaven. And in the book of Acts, we see, as you read it, the Holy Spirit is the main character. If you've ever wondered why the book of Acts is called the book of Acts, um, it's because it's traditionally been called the Acts of the Apostles, because it marks the, the activity of the apostles in the early church. However, it would be more accurate to label it um, this book, the, the Acts of Christ through the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the main actor, and he's been sent by Jesus for what takes place in the book of Acts and the, the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church. He's the main character of Acts, because the book of Acts records the actual historical progression from old to new. It's a unique time. 
<clears throat> and so let me let me start. I'm, I'll give you the outline, and then we will we will will begin. So we're going to look at two points. First, um, before we see Acts and, and the mark of transition, we're going to see the the first the promise of the Spirit and the new covenant. So we're going to look at some Old Testament passages that that highlight the the nature of the new covenant, specifically the role of the Spirit in the new covenant. So we're going to see the promise of the Spirit in the new covenant first, and then second, we'll look at the unique work of the Spirit in Acts. Okay, so those are two points. We're going to see the promise of the Spirit in the new covenant first, and then second, the unique work of the Spirit in Acts. But before we look at the first point, let me just say two things by way of introduction. First, I just want to say this regarding the the structure of this series. Um, We're we're doing this series on the Holy Spirit, and I want us, as we we think about the third person of the Trinity, I want us to have a, a deep and a wide view of the work of the Spirit. And so I don't want your first thoughts when it comes to the Spirit to be His work in your personal life. And so maybe if you thought, hey, you're doing a, a sermon series on this Holy Spirit. Uh, so what, are you just going to cover the fruits of the Spirit? Or are you just going to work? I don't want our initial impulse to be, what does the Spirit do for me personally? Though He does a lot for you personally, and we will get there. The work of the Spirit is much bigger than, than your personal life. And so, in fact, our personal or our experiential perspectives on the Spirit must be shaped by the broader historical perspective. The reality is that if your understanding of the Spirit is strictly personal, so if I say, what's the main point of the Spirit? If I say, what's the work of the Spirit in your life? Okay, you can answer personal. But if I say, why was the Spirit given? If your answer is solely personal, what He does for you, then, then I would say your perspective is limited and, and even bordering on unbiblical. And so, Lord willing, we're going to get to specific work of the Spirit in the lives of individual Christians, because that is important it's just that we're, gonna, we're starting here at the outset with a, with a much wider lens so that when we get to the personal work of the Spirit, we'll have a much more developed understanding of, of Him in His broader work on the timeline of history and salvation in, in Old and New Covenants. So that's kind of the, the method here to the series, if that's helpful, um, that that's what I'm doing. And then second point of introduction, just, just regarding the book of Acts, we're, we're looking at Acts today because, and I mentioned this briefly, but I just want to make sure it's clear, we're, we're looking at Acts because in the book of Acts, we do see the transition from old to new. And, and as we look at these few key passages in the book of Acts, I'm hoping that you're going to see the unique nature of the book of Acts. And so when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, he's buried and he's raised three days later, and, and he ascends into heaven 40 days after that, something significant has happened. Right? So, so the life of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, this is, this is a significant event. These are significant events in the history of the world. The person and work of, of Christ is, is the climax of all of history. So, so it's all moving towards him. It's the hinge point on which everything turns. And so Jesus and the salvation that he accomplishes, the establishment of the kingdom of God in Christ, is the whole point of, of not just the Bible story, but the whole point of all of time in history. And so Jesus is the main point. He's the big deal. He's the biggest deal of all the Bible. If, if you want to know what the Bible is about, it's about Jesus. And with that being the case, when Jesus dies and goes back into heaven, right, something has shifted, something has changed. Salvation has been accomplished. A change has taken place. And it's not just a change in terms of the disciples' experience, I mean a change that involves the entire timeline of history. The death and resurrection of Christ commences a change that alters the experience of everyone that comes on the other side of it. 
And that change, as we'll see, is best understood, best accounted for as the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And so the apostles and the members of the early church that we see in the book of Acts, they lived in a unique time because as they're alive, they lived under the old. They see Jesus and they're, they're alive during his ministry. They see his death, his burial, resurrection, and ascension, and they're still alive on the other side. And so their lifetime is unique. They live in unparalleled times, a time like which had never been experienced before, nor would ever be experienced again after. And so in that sense, as we look at the book of Acts, we recognize the unique nature of the book and the experience of those in the book. Pentecost publicly marks the transition from the old to the new. It is by its very nature, shares with the once-for-all character of the entire Christ event. And so Pentecost specifically and and the the following events in Acts are one-time events and not to be expected again. In the same way, here's the connection, in the same way that the death and resurrection of Christ are not to be expected again. And so when the Spirit comes and His coming marks the the commencing of this new covenant, that is a one-time event, just like the death and resurrection of Jesus is a one-time event. And so when we, it's important for us as we, as we seek to understand the work of the Spirit, understanding the nature of the book of Acts shapes how we understand the work of the Spirit. And so we're going to look at the book of Acts. Um, and, and so if we don't have a foundation of, of what's happening in Acts and its unique nature, we will view the events of Pentecost, the events of the book of Acts, as, as prescriptive as, oh, here's what we're to do, here's what we're to expect. And I'm saying that's not how we should view the book of Acts. It is descriptive. It is what happened one time, and so that that shapes our understanding. Okay, so having said all that, that, that's all by way of introduction. Um, But let's begin by looking at our first point, um, which is going before Acts in the Old Testament and looking at the promise of the Spirit and the New Covenant. So that's what we'll look first, um, the the promise of the Spirit and the New Covenant. So the three Old Testament passages we're going to work through Um, is Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, and Joel 2. Okay, so we're going to look through those, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, and Joel 2. And so the idea that the role of the Spirit in the New Covenant was something that was promised and foreshadowed and prophesied in the Old Testament is something that hopefully you've heard before. I I, I feel like I've I've taught and and preached on this multiple times over the past, um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but, but I do think it's important to paint the picture, the big picture of this new covenant hope that, that shapes the, the Israelites' view and perspective of the new covenant, what's going to happen, um, specifically the Spirit's role. So let, let's start there in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, um, verses 16 through 20, 16 through 36, or 16 through 26, I'm sorry. So Ezekiel 36, um, if you turn there, you, I'm going to read a, read a few verses there in just a, a moment. So Ezekiel 36. Now Israel, in, in the time of Ezekiel, Israel has been, has been divided between a north and a south. So, so they're, they're, they've been divided for, for quite some time. In fact, they divide soon after David die, Solomon dies. Um, and so they're divided, and then both the north and the south are in exile. They, they've, been, they've been taken over by the, these foreign enemies, invaded them, both the nations, north and south, and both are in exile. And their exile is because of their unfaithfulness. Their exile was judgment for their sin. And so they are, they are in exile because of their own doing, and the hope of the Israelites 
in that context, as Ezekiel's writing, is really dim. They're almost on the verge of hopelessness. And it's into this context that Ezekiel writes. And so listen to what the Lord tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to start in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. So the Lord says to Ezekiel, listen to this promise. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In verse 24, I will take you from the nation and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And so here in in this passage in Ezekiel 36, in this Exodus-like language, the Lord promises to to Ezekiel, I'm going I'm to reconstitute or I'm going to regather, recreate almost my disobedient people. And so Ezekiel proclaims, even in the midst of exile, there's hope. And, and this hope that, that, that is going to govern the Israelites, a distinguishing mark of this hope of, of God's mighty work is going to be the sending of the Spirit. Did you notice that? Whereas before, I think, think Old Testament history prior to this, the judges or the kings or the prophets, they were the ones who were given the Spirit for their unique purposes. The anointed individuals, the, the, the special members of Israel were given the Spirit. But here, in Ezekiel 36, this forward-looking hope of the Israelites is tied to the outpouring of the Spirit on all. Did you notice? I will, put my, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone. In verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. This is a plural you within all of you. It is a unique promise, a promise that... that Ezekiel says is going to be fulfilled at a future point. And so he's looking forward to the, 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 the coming promise is going to be the spirit on all Israelites. In fact, if you remember, I know I've, I've mentioned this multiple times, but in Numbers chapter 11, that's where Moses, he's in the wilderness leading the Israelites and he's overwhelmed. And, and so they, they say, hey, let's, let's get you some helpers. And so there's 70 men who, who Moses chooses to help him bear the burden, care for the, and rule the Israelites. And so he chooses 70 men. They're, all, they're called elders there in, in Numbers 11. And so they all get together. The Lord comes down in a cloud and he speaks to Moses. And then he takes some of the spirit that's on Moses and, and puts it on the 70 elders. Okay, so, so that's what happens there. And then two men who weren't there, they, they didn't get the memo, they weren't at the meeting, but the Spirit comes on them. And so, so people hear about these two men who aren't part of the 70 and say, well, they, they can't have the Spirit. They weren't part of that special meeting. And, and even Joshua gets word and he says, this can't happen. He goes to Moses and says, hey, Moses, you got to make them stop. And to which Moses in Numbers 29, 11, or eleven twenty nine says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit on all of them? And so that Numbers 11 hope and wish of Moses is exactly what Ezekiel 36 says is going to happen. That's what Ezekiel, exactly what Ezekiel is promising to happen 
in a future day. That's Ezekiel 36. Next passage, one chapter later, Ezekiel 37. So same prophet, same context. Remember, exile, same context. But here in chapter 37, there's a different image used. In fact, this is a, one of the most memorable images of the Old Testament in terms of Old Testament prophets. And this image is even more memorable of, in, in depicting a re- restoration or a recreation. And so in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel, there in verses 1 through 10, Ezekiel has a vision And in this vision, he's in this valley. So this massive valley, and the valley is filled with dry bones. Okay, so dry bones means these bones once made up people, but they're dead now, and they've been dead for a long time. They're dry. They're dusty bones. And so Ezekiel's in the middle of this valley of dry bones. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, hey, prophesy to these dead bones. And then verse 7, listen to what happens when Ezekiel does what the Lord says. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then the Lord said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. Verse 10, so I prophesied. As he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Okay, so that's the vision. Ezekiel's in a valley of dry bones. The Lord says, hey, prophesy to them. Prophesy, they come together. They still lack breath. Prophesy to the breath. And so breath comes, and they're alive now. And then here's the significant part. He continues, verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Again, this is plural. You all shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. And so again, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. Just like in 36, in chapter 37, the language is, in the, is the same. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and you're going to live. And so the, this prophecy here in, in Ezekiel 37 is related to a coming day. Okay, part of Israel's hope was that at this future date, the spirit would be poured out upon his people. That, that's the hope. That's the hope of Ezekiel. There, there's another, if you want to write down Isaiah 44, verses 3 through 5. That, that's another a place where, where there's this pouring out of, of water, of the imagery of the Spirit on dry land where Israel is going to be renewed. But then the final hope passage of the Old Testament we're going to see, probably the most well-known, is Joel chapter 2. So our, our third and final Old Testament passage, Joel chapter 2, it's the most well-known because in this, in this passage, this, this is the exact passage that the Apostle Peter uses in Acts 2 at Pentecost. We'll see more about that in just a minute. But Peter, or but Joel, in Joel chapter 2, listen, listen to the, the promise of Joel 2. Verse, this is verse 28 through 32. Here's what Joel says. It shall come to pass afterward, we'll say more about after what, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now we're not going to go into specifics here, but but in Joel chapter 2, the, 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 this promise of 28 through 32 of Joel 2 is, is preceded by a warning of judgment. So, so the Lord in, in Joel 2, 1 through 11, there's this promised judgment or in anticipation of judgment. And this judgment is the day of the Lord. It's coming. And it's going to be, it's going to be a disaster. And, and this coming, this judgment is because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And so as Joel chapter 2 continues in, in verses 12 and following, there's this cry, turn back, return to the Lord, repent. And then this cry for returning, the Lord has pity on his repentant people, and they know that he is God, Joel 2.27 says. And it is then, as they've returned, the promise of the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh is made. Okay, and so this pouring out of the Spirit is a mark of the last days, this final future time. And what's going to accompany the pouring out of the Spirit, as as we notice there in verses 30 and 31, the, the, the accompanying... Signs and wonders are these supernatural signs and wonders attesting to what's going on, that God has in fact intervened in the world. And so that's Joel 2, this forward looking. In those days I will pour out my spirit, Joel says. And so as we finish this first point, we see that this hope, this future hope is tied to a, the new covenant. This is a new covenant hope. And the promise that grounded the hope of Israel was wrapped up in the outpouring of the Spirit. And so the new covenant and the outpouring of the Spirit are, are connected. This is part of the hope of Israel as they're, they're, they're passing through uh, their, their history. And when the Spirit was poured out, it's clear that everyone would benefit. Every member would be marked by the Spirit. Not just a few, not just the leaders, but everyone. Which then prepares us to, to look at Pentecost Specifically, and more generally, the book of Acts. Having laid this Old Testament groundwork, we're now prepared to see what happens in the book of Acts is unique because it's part of what was promised beforehand. It's part of salvation history. It's part of God's big, grand, sweeping timeline of history. We're able to now better understand that Pentecost publicly marks the transition from old to the new covenant. And we're able to see that that Pentecost, by its very nature, shares in the once-for-all character of the entire Christ event, as I said earlier. So let's look point two, the unique work of the Spirit in Acts. And so we're going to begin in Acts chapter two, where we see Peter quoting the Joel two passage that we just looked at. And when Peter quotes, so so if we go to Acts two, as Peter quotes Acts chapter two, he's doing so to, to, to validate or describe or give evidence to the, those gathered there in Jerusalem of what's happening. So Peter says, hey, this, well, let, let, me, let, me, let me read it. So, so Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. This is, this is all the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So remember Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples to wait for the promise of the Spirit, go to the upper room and wait. And so they're waiting. And then, then as they're waiting, chapter 2, the day of Pentecost arrives. They're all together. There's a sound like a mighty rushing wind fills the entire house. Verse 3, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues 
as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, this is, this is unique. This is something unique happening. At the, at the time of Pentecost, the Jews from all over the world had come to Jerusalem for Passover. That's what they, they came for this celebration, for this feast. And each person from different countries, from different regions, so there's all different languages. They're all Jews, but they've scattered and they have other languages and they've come back. And as these disciples are, are filled with the Spirit, they began speaking in tongues. And, and in this case, tongues is a known language because it's not just, it's just, just babble. So it's just babbling, un, un, undiscernible sounds or, or utterances, but, but this, there are people gathered around that hear the apostles declaring the mighty works of God in their languages, where they've come from. Okay, so it's known languages here, and there's just the mighty works of God are being proclaimed. Now these disciples, these apostles who, who receive the Spirit, they, they, don't, they haven't taken the Rosetta Stone program. They don't know these languages, but they are given supernatural utterances to, to, to proclaim to all the Jews who'd gathered there in Jerusalem the mighty works of God. And so some of them gathered and say, well, what's going on? We don't know. What does this mean? Others say, well, they're just drunk. They're just filled with new wine. Okay, they, don't listen to them. They are crazy. And that's when Peter stands up and he begins speaking. And while the main point of his speaking is, is the death and resurrection of Christ, the role that Christ played in, in the plan of redemption, specifically in the Jews and their role in it, well, that's the main point. His sermon begins on a different note. So, so listen to how Peter begins his sermon. As, as people are saying, they're just drunk. What's going on? There's confusion. And so here's Acts 2.14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this, Peter says, this, all that's going on, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Then he quotes the, the Joel passage we just read. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my flesh on all, flesh on all spirit, and goes on and on. Ends in, in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter then goes into the Jesus of Nazareth and what happened. But my point here is to show you that Peter understands the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost to be a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. It's an event on the timeline of salvation history. Everything that Jesus said would happen had happened. Everything that had been promised regarding the new covenant, the pouring out of the Spirit, was being accomplished. And so Pentecost marks this beginning of this transition from old to new, and it was taking place before Peter and the other disciples' very eyes. I'm emphasizing this because it's going to be really important as we move forward in our study of the Holy Spirit. What happened at Pentecost is to be understood as a salvation history event and not simply an application of divine salvation that bears many repetitions. There's never going to be another Pentecost the Azusa Street revivals were, were, were miraculous. They were not another Pentecost. Pentecost happened one time because there is one transition from old to new, and that happened in Acts 2 and, and, as, and in side effects or after effects throughout the book of Acts. And so we don't read the account of Pentecost and expect to be replicated here and now. It was a one-time event marking the transition. And so in Acts 2, when the listeners heard the good news of Christ, they cried out, they repented, they believed, and, and they received the Holy Spirit. They called on the name of the Lord, and they were saved, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so this new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit was beginning. It started with the apostles, but then it quickly went to those Jews who had gathered and who heard the news of Jesus and saw Jesus glorified and were convicted, and then they cried out, and they were saved. 
But it started there in Jerusalem, which is really important because if you look back at Acts chapter 1, maybe it's on the, 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 the other page or maybe you have to scroll up a little bit. But if you look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8, these are, this may be the, the, the most important verse in the book of Acts. But in Acts 1 8, before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he tells his disciples, verse 8, but you will receive power. So he said, stay where you stay, go into Jerusalem and just wait. Wait for the power from on high. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So notice that these are these are these are specific markers. Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria. Ends of the earth. Three stages laid out in Acts 1.8. And so when Jesus tells his spirit this, when he tells his disciples this about the work of the spirit, he's laying out a roadmap of how the spirit's going to work. He's laying out the boundary markers for this new covenant inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. And there is Jerusalem in the middle. And then Judea, all of Judea and Samaria is this wider circle, if you think of a bullseye. And then the ends of the earth is, is unlimited. The, the boundary possibilities are limitless. But that's what Jesus lays out, this, this map of Jerusalem, then, then all Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And so Acts 1.8 forms an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. And so what I want us to see is how each of these boundary markers are reached. First stop, Jerusalem. That's what happened at Pentecost. That's what we just covered. The Spirit is, is there. They're the witnesses of Christ. The apostles are his witnesses. They're in Jerusalem. That that's in Jerusalem, the Spirit is poured out, and there's the miraculous signs and wonders that accompany it. That's step one. Next step from Acts 1.8 is all of Judea and Samaria. So fast forward to Acts chapter 8. There in Acts 8, we see this second boundary marker broken. And I, th- I think the book of Acts is recording this very intentionally for us. So, so in Acts chapter 8, one chapter before, Acts 7, Stephen is stoned, right? And, and so after the stoning of Stephen... There's this great persecution. Remember, the Apostle Paul was leading this, but but the church spreads. Okay, so it's persecution that spreads the church. And in chapter 8, Stephen and stoned. Stephen has been stoned. I want to pick up in verse 4 of Acts 8. Acts 8, chapter 4. Chapter 8, verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the sign, when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So here's the signs and wonders. So there was much joy in that city. Then a few verses later, skip down to verse 14 of chapter 8. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, that is Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and they, that is the Samaritans, received the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to what's going on here in Samaria. Philip is there. He's, he's, being, he's being cast out because of the persecution that's arisen for the Christians. But he's not an apostle. But he goes and he's still a witness. And he proclaims Christ to the Samaritans. That'd be no big deal. We probably don't think much of it. 
in, except for the fact that we're following this roadmap that Jesus laid out in Acts 1.8. And this is Samaria, right? This is not Jerusalem. This is Samaria. And so Philip preaches the gospel of Christ, the good news. And we assume that they re- believed it. They received it. They believed it because they, we find out later in verse 16, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So they hear the good news of the gospel and they believe. And surely that whole city, everyone that hears, they're, they're excited. They're overjoyed. However, when, when the apostles hear about it in Jerusalem, notice what happens. Peter and John are sent to check things out. They go to Samaria, and when they show up, they pray for the Samaritans, and then the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. So what's going on? Right? So is, is this a second experience of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, where they saved, and then they, they get extra saved when they receive the Spirit? Some people see this, this exact occasion as evidence of a second blessing or a, a subsequent baptism of the Spirit that, that's after salvation. They say, well, look, the Samaritans were saved, and then they're baptized into the Spirit, and, they receive, and then they reach a whole second level. That, I don't think that's what's going on here. Remember, the gospel is breaking out of Jerusalem. It's going into all Judea and Samaria. That's a big deal. And so the apostles are called in order to verify that the Samaritans, remember those Samaritans, the ones like the woman at the well who, who Jews didn't associate with, or the one like the, who, who's the main character in the parable about being a good neighbor, right? The despised Samaritans have actually heard the good news of Christ and believed. And so the apostles go down to verify, wait a minute, is this really what's going on? And the Spirit comes as verification that they are now part of God's new covenant people. And the authority of the apostles is necessary, If it's just Philip, though he's probably a great guy, he says, hey, let me tell you, the Samaritans believed and received the Spirit. No, no, that's not going to carry at the church in Jerusalem. But when when Peter and John go and they see their testimony is actually going to be really significant in in the early church. We'll see in, in Acts 15, Peter's testimony is really significant here. And so Judea and Samaria, it's like the second boundary has now been broken. The Samaritans, who aren't, who aren't fully Jews, but, but they're part Jews, and now they receive the Spirit. They're part of the new covenant people because they are filled with the Spirit. But that's not the last stop. We're still not done. We've gone from Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria, but we still got to get to the ends of the earth. In other words, as far away from Jerusalem and the Jews as we can, which leads to our last stop in Acts chapter 11. And so Acts chapter 11 If you'll turn there. Now in Acts 10, earlier in Acts 10, Cornelius is told, so this man named Cornelius, he's told, right? He's a centurion of what is known in Italian courthouse. This is a a Gentile of Gentiles, right? He is not Jewish. And Cornelius is told by an angel, go ask, send two of your servants to go get Simon Peter, who's staying with another guy named Simon by the sea. And so Cornelius sends two of his servants to go get Peter, Okay, so, so Cornelius has this vision, and the angel says, hey, go get Peter. He needs to come talk to you. Okay, I'm going to do it. He sends his two servants. As, while the, as the servants are in route, Peter is up, at the roo- up on the roof of Simon's house, and he has this vision of a sheet filled with animals descending from heaven. And he's told, Peter, rise and eat. Peter says, oh, wait, those are unclean animals. I don't eat those. I'm a good Jew. I don't do that. A voice says, then, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Okay, so, so that, that, that's a declaration. Don't call something unclean that I've made clean. Okay, this, this vision happens three times, then it ends. 
And so Peter's perplexed about, well, what, is, what, what in the world is going on? What, what about clean, unclean animal? What, what's going on? The, the, there's a knock at the house of Simon's house, knock at the door of Simon's house, and it's the two servants from Cornelius. And they, they say, hey, we're, we're here to get Peter. And the Spirit, notice in, in Acts eleven nineteen, 19, the Spirit says to Peter, three men are looking for you, you better go with them. Don't wait, just go with them because I have sent them. So the Spirit tells Peter, you better go with these men. So Peter goes with these men, then proceeds with them back to the house of Cornelius. So here's Cornelius, a Gentile. With, he's got all his friends and family. He's eager to hear what the Lord is going to tell him. And so listen to what happens. This is verses 24 through 29 of Acts 11. And so on the following day, they entered Caesarea. So that's where Cornelius lives. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So it's a packed house. 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and he found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation with Gentiles. But Peter says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why, why did you send for me? And so, so here's the unfolding of the plan, right? Here, we're at the ends of the earth. We're, we're outside of Jerusalem. We're outside of Samaria. Cornelius tells Peter, he says, okay, I'll tell you why you were sent, why I sent for you. An angel told me to send for you. And so you're here. You must, you, God must want you to tell me something. What, what, what has the Lord commanded you to tell me? And tell all these gathered. They're eager. And as, in, as is common in the book of Acts, in verses 34 through 43, Peter preaches the gospel to those gathered in the house of Cornelius. He explains the events of the death and resurrection of Christ. And as he explains the gospel, remember, these aren't Jews. They're not even Samaritans. These are Gentiles. Right? This is ends of the earth. And there, in a house filled with Gentiles, the apostle Peter who had been clearly directed into this situation by the Spirit himself, Peter preaches the good news, and listen to what happens, Acts eleven forty four. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And so he, this is the unfolding of the plan. The Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and now even in Caesarea upon even Gentiles. And upon re-receiving the Spirit, there's a manifestation of miraculous signs, evidence. God is doing this. God is validating these that, that you have thought in your whole history are unclean. God is validating them. They don't have to become clean because God has cleansed them with His Spirit. He's given them the full manifestation of the Spirit here in Caesarea, in the house of Cornelius. And they all speak in tongues, just like in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And so we have in these passages and acts this one unique boundary-breaking procession of the Spirit from Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is recording for us the new covenant promises of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all of Israel 
and it's being fulfilled throughout the book. And this new covenant experience of the Spirit, receiving the Spirit, is not dependent on whether you're, you're in good standing in Israel. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a king or a judge or a prophet. This new covenant experience of the Spirit isn't even dependent on one's Jewishness, on your ethnic identity. Instead, this new covenant experience of the Spirit is dependent upon faith in Christ alone. So Jesus and faith in Him is what, what makes you a member of the new covenant, believing the good news of the gospel of Christ. And that good news, that outpouring of the Spirit, is even for the Gentiles. And so in the, the book of Acts, we see the Spirit, the progress, progression of, of stages, so that then when the Spirit is put out on the Gentiles, there's no limit that the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant and the members of the people of God are now identified by those who are united to Jesus. And the, the role of the Spirit in that is essential. And so I want to close with a few points of application. As we've seen here, the book of Acts, we've seen this unique outpouring of the Spirit that marks a transition from old to new. And so the first main point of application is simply that, that this outpouring of the Spirit is for you and for me. For everyone who's believed the good news, for everyone who's, who's put their faith in Christ, by virtue of your faith, your union with Jesus, you are a member of the people of God. You are a member of true Israel, marked by faith. A member of the new covenant, and as such, you have been freely given the Holy Spirit. I mean, we shouldn't lose the, the weight of that. We shouldn't lose the significance of that. All the promises of Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37 and Joel 2 and other passages, they have been fulfilled. The Spirit has been poured out. And He's been poured out and given to you and to me and to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. That's part of what it means to be saved is you receive the Spirit. And so first point of application, we ought to rejoice that we are members of the new covenant and that we have been given the Spirit himself. Second point of application, just in understanding the book of Acts, that so much, and this is my personal observation, so much of the confusion surrounding the Holy Spirit, specifically his supernatural workings and supernatural aspects of his gifts, so much of the confusion surrounds or surrounding the Holy Spirit comes from a basic misunderstanding of the events in the book of Acts. And so we read the book of Acts, we say, oh, it happened in Acts, that's New Testament, that must be supposed to happen here, when that's not what the book of Acts is. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. So, so people read the, the speaking in tongues at Pentecost or at in Cornelius' house. They say, hey, that's normative. We need to do that. that. That's what Christians do. Look at what's happened in Acts. Or people see two or three-step experiences of receiving the Spirit. Oh, they believe, but then they're baptized later. That must mean that that's what happens to Christians. Or... Hey, 3,000 people, that's revival. We need, to, we need to recreate that and, and more. But in all these situations and, and in others, the, the, there's a misunderstanding, I would say, in, that comes from a failure to recognize the descriptive nature of Acts, the descriptive nature of the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. That's not ever happening again. There's a unique time that the disciples, that the early church lived in, and so Acts provides not a paradigm for individual Christian experience, but an account of the gospel's outward movement, geographically, racially, and above all, theologically. That's D.A. Carson's comment on how we should understand Acts.
And so related to this, a third point of application is simply this. There, there's no such thing as a second-class Christian. The examples of, of faith followed by an interim period of time before reception of the Spirit don't provide a pattern of personal experience for personal experience. It, the Samaria, the Samaritans, they, they, are not, uh, they, they are not a pattern that we should expect to, be, to follow. They believe, but then they receive the Spirit later when the apostles come. That, that's not a pattern. The events of Acts were unique. And so instead of the two-step process where there's spirit baptism after faith, instead of looking at that and say, oh, that, that must be what happened, we can look at that and say, well, that's kind of strange. Let, let's, look at the rest, let's look at the rest of the New Testament. And the rest of the New Testament makes perfectly clear that when one believes in Christ, when someone repents of their sin and puts their faith in Christ, it is clear that at that point, someone rece- that person receives the Spirit. There's a one-time event for the Christian and he or she receives the Spirit in full at the point of faith and repentance. Upon our faith and repentance, we enter into the new covenant blessings that began at Pentecost. This is good news. So, so if you've never been baptized by the Spirit, someone says, hey, you've been baptized in the Spirit? You say, yeah, I, I was when I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I received the new covenant promise of the Spirit in full. I'm not awaiting a further down payment. I have received the Spirit. All who come, this is Sinclair Ferguson, all who come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord receive the same gift as the disciples did. Consequently, believers enter into the implications of Pentecost just as they enter into the implications of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Or as J.I. Packer, God says, all, God means all Christians as such to enjoy the full inward blessing of Pentecost right from the moment of their conversion. And so are you amazed at what happened at Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit and, and the work in the lives of the early church? We have that power in full. The Spirit has been given to you and me upon our faith and repentance. And so we've received the Spirit in full. We're not longing for a second experience of the Spirit. And then finally, the last point of application. I think we see that the Trinitarian nature of salvation so as we see the, the role of the Spirit and the pouring out of the Spirit upon the church, we see that, that, that the Spirit plays a centri- central role in salvation. And so it's fair to say that each member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all play a significant essential role. So if you're saved, it's because of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all have played a role in your and my salvation. And so it's fair to say... True to say, maybe measure your gauge or understand salvation. If there is no father, you aren't saved. If there is no son, you are not saved. We, we all would probably agree with that. Oh yeah, of course, Jesus died for my sins. If there's no son, there's no salvation. If there's no spirit, there's no salvation. All three members of the Trinity are involved, intricately involved in the, the, the work of salvation from the planning to the accomplishing, to the applying. And so a point of application would be for us to rejoice in the salvation that has been purchased for us and accomplished for us by the triune God whom we worship. And so let us worship Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, that, that's, that's all we have today. Let me, let me pray for us as we close. And then Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll see you again next time. But let me pray for us as we close this morning.